back on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom. Hunters and fishermen will like this new initiative from the Interior Department. Interior is expanding opportunities over 88 wildlife refuges covering more than 2 million acres. For more on what it took to make that happen, the chief of the National Wildlife Refuge System at the Fish and Wildlife Service, Cynthia Martinez, spoke with Tom Temin. So what is going on here? People can hunt and fish only with a license on federal lands and you're expanding that opportunity? Yeah, absolutely. Well, they get their hunting and fishing licenses from their respective states. But as far as the Fish and Wildlife Service goes, we manage hunting and fishing programs to ensure sustainable wildlife populations on these lands where it's compatible with the purpose for which that wildlife refuge was established and its management goals and other recreational activities. So we offer more access for hunting and fishing opportunities. And is the reason that the protected species are up in population and you need to maybe cut them back a little bit? That can be one purpose for sure. And what territories are covered? Is it primarily the West or is this nationwide? Oh, the National Wildlife Refuge System is nationwide. We've got National Wildlife Refuges in every state in the Union. And quite honestly, we administer lands and waters in all 50 states and five territories. So if you think about from Puerto Rico up to Maine to the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska, all the way to Mariana Islands, that's the expansive nature of this system of protected lands we call the National Wildlife Refuge System. So a few million acres is not all that much in the context of the, of the territory you're talking about. Well, no, we have about 95 million acres of lands and somewhere around 760 million acres in the marine environment. That includes the submerged lands as well as waters. And what are some of the species that can be hunted now under this new expanded licensing opportunity? And where are they? Just, you know, rough idea. A rough idea. I mean, we have huntable species and, and the states determine, you know, the species. And so it's anywhere from white-tailed deer to elk to you can get even into, you know, possums and some of your small game as well, including raccoons and other things of that nature. What about bears and some of the cats that are, seem to be making a resurgence and, you know, scaring people in these in certain areas. <laughs> yeah, well, bears, black bears, probably closer here to, to home for people to understand. Yes. And again, it's in cooperation with the states. And so the states issue the license, we provide the place. And how do you do the count and the verification that, yes, the species can be hunted in greater numbers because it has gotten beyond what the land perhaps can sustain? Sure. So biologists are, you know, they do monitoring and population surveys. And remember, wildlife refuges, they're just a piece within the greater landscape, right? And so it's not just specific to the refuge, but also the surrounding lands around that refuge and whatever the range of the species is. And the Park Service and the Fish and Wildlife Service in particular have an idea called units, and that is an animal per license, or how does that all work? No, when we talk about units, we're talking more about the units within the National Wildlife Refuge System. And so we have 568 National Wildlife Refuges across the system. Each one of those can be termed a unit. But within each refuge, we also have hunt units. And so just because there's hunting allowed within the boundaries of a National Wildlife Refuge, it's also constricted to certain units within that refuge. So they're hunt units. In these refuges, does anyone live there or are they entirely unpopulated by people? <laughs> well, 
we have refuge housing for employees, and so there may be an employee that lives on a National Wildlife Refuge. But within our boundaries, we don't necessarily have all of it as federally managed. There may be what we would term in-holdings. And so, yes, there may be private landowners within an approved refuge boundary. So, therefore, the units have to be carefully delineated as to where people can shoot. Oh, sure. And we have to manage that again with the other public uses on National Wildlife Refuges. I mean, yes, we allow hunting and fishing, but wildlife photography, wildlife viewing, environmental education, environmental interpretation, those are also wildlife-dependent public uses that we allow on National Wildlife Refuges. And so you have to manage all of those uses within that refuge boundary. And everybody better wear an orange vest. We're speaking with (laughs) Cynthia Martinez. She's chief of the National Wildlife Refuge System at the Fish and Wildlife Service. And so explain the system. The states decide, yes, this is huntable or fishable, but the licenses come from the Fish and Wildlife Service? No, the licenses come from the states. And so the states determine which species within their states are going to be allowed to be hunted. And then as far as the locations of where they can hunt, that's where we come in. And we provide those hunting opportunities on those National Wildlife Refuges. And what is the enforcement mechanism if, say, people can take a total of one raccoon or one and a half deer, although I don't think you can shoot too many deer in some of the places. I'm not sure how you take half a deer. How do you manage that one? (laughs) Well, the dumb one or maybe the tiny one. But is there any kind of enforcement mechanism to make sure that people comply? Sure, sure. We have check stations, especially during deer season where people have to check their deer, let us know what they've taken off of the refuge. We also have federal wildlife officers within the National Wildlife Refuge System, and we work pretty close with our state partners on that as well. In the United States, relative to some other nations, poaching and overhunting is probably less of an issue, I'm thinking. Well, it doesn't mean that it still doesn't occur. All right. And you're the chief of the refuge system. What does your own work entail? Sounds exciting. (laughs) Well, it is exciting, right? As chief of the refuge system, I'm primarily responsible for budget formulation, working with Congress, and then policy, developing policy, drafting policy, getting that through for how we manage as a system. I work with our regional folks to try to get to consistency across the system. And working on National Wildlife Refuges, it's a diverse job. Not only do we have the biology that we focus on, but it's the management of the habitat, whether it's, you know, bottomwood hardlands or whether it's, you know, managing for waterfowl. But then we also have this whole infrastructure right? And so any day it can be talking about facilities. We have a very active prescribed fire management program. We use prescribed fire as a management tool on National Wildlife Refuges, so it could be talking about fire. I mentioned our federal wildlife officers as well. They're great ambassadors to the refuge system and welcoming folks. And then we've got a whole visitor services component, right? We've got the people that work with our publics and our volunteers. I got to tell you, managing National Wildlife Refuges, we can't do it alone. We really rely on the public. We rely on volunteers and we rely on our friends groups. Uh, It's 5013C groups that work directly with us. And so when you think about the scope of what we work on, I mean, it's just, it's across the board and in some of the most amazing places on this planet. And do you get a chance in the job, even though you're way up there in D.C., to get out there and tramp through some of those lands once in a while just to keep 
keep the smell and taste of it in your head? Well, absolutely, right? I mean, I started in the field, and I didn't really know much about these headquarters people. I thought they were all a bunch of pencil-headed bureaucrats. And when I came to headquarters, that's the last thing I wanted to become. And so you do need to stay grounded. And how do you stay grounded? You get out on the ground. You go and you kick the dirt with the refuge manager and you get the wage grade professional, you know, aside because the wage grade professionals and the administrative folks are the ones that will really tell you what's going on on that refuge. And so we take our leadership team to the field twice a year, typically in June and October. That's where we have our national leadership team meeting meetings, and we require that it's done on a National Wildlife Refuge. We give those refuge managers and their staff an opportunity to show us the great things that they're doing on their refuges. We get an opportunity to hear what their challenges are. We get that opportunity to see it, smell it, taste it, kick it. There has to be a field trip. If you're going to manage the system and you're going to make decisions about where dollars go and what the policy is, you might ought to want to get out there and put your feet on the ground and see what it's still like. And are there campfires and hot dogs on sticks and that kind of stuff too? Well, there's definitely campfires. We like our food, so it might be a little bit more than a hot dog. And, you know, as a native New Mexican, there better be some green chili around that. Yeah, that sounds good. And just a final question. Have any of the lands under your purview been affected by the horrible fires out west? We're doing fairly good right now with fires. We have a lot of firefighters out on the ground helping with that. And when it comes to wildland fire, it's really an interagency approach. And so it's all hands on deck. And so we certainly have a lot of folks that are deployed to fires. And it's been a challenge. It's been a challenge with COVID. Certainly has been an added uh, factor there as well for our folks. But as far as the lands go, we're doing fairly well, but certainly have a lot of personnel deployed. Cynthia Martinez is chief of the National Wildlife Refuge System at the Fish and Wildlife Service. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. And you can hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe on Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy. with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO 
where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Uh, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. 
what a wonderful way to to spend an assignment with uh, with backup and and guidance like that. What what great great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they gonna say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing, if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally and, agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.